so this is this is the problem is that when you have so many variables in the treatment in this case the compost tea I mean you've got who knows how many different species and how many how many of each of those species and whatever else is in that tea I mean it's you know it's an entire ecosystem and you're applying that and then expecting that every time you do that it's going to have the same effect I mean you know biology isn't a recipe this is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant... You know what, folks? This is normally the part of the podcast where I describe what the podcast is about. Uh, it's for farmers and gardeners and people who love food security and blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But um, Ted from Alberta is visiting me right now, and he asked if he could sit in on my editing of this week's episode. See how the sausage was made, I guess. Uh, but I gotta, I gotta say I'm regretting the decision to let him in here. Uh, I'm a little unnerved right now. Um, well, you can, you probably get it. A lot of, a lot of breathing. And honestly, he hasn't blinked. I'm, I'm actually sitting right across from Ted. I'm, I'm, I'm literally looking right at him. And Ted, you haven't even blinked this whole time. He's just got that lazy eye. Anyway, uh, is the room in a podcast... I've got a great guest today. Linda Chalker Scott is an extension specialist down at WSU, and uh, we're going to talk compost tea. Stay tuned. Hey, folks, it's Jordan. So, I've got an interesting interview lined up with this woman. Hi. My name is Linda Chalker Scott, and I am the Extension Specialist for Urban Horticulture at Washington State University. And the way I normally describe my job is that I translate uh, the theoretical science into immediate practice for home gardeners, arborists, professionals, whoever doesn't happen to be a research scientist. And what I've really spent a lot of my time doing is looking at the science, or sometimes lack of science, behind a lot of different garden practices and products and then trying to figure out if they are worth your money or if there's something else out there that's better. So I came across Linda when I was Googling around and I happened upon Linda's, one of Linda's pages through Washington State University. Linda maintains this uh, horticultural myths blog uh, with all kinds of articles kind of taking aim at a bunch of myths that exist in the gardening and horticulture world uh, that she wanted to address. I think she's done this over a period of years, uh, and I did a deep dive. There there were some fascinating articles in there, and I learned a lot. And so I got a hold of Linda, and I asked her if we could chat on the phone, and I suggested we talk about compost teas because that's something that I've been uh, considering getting more into on my farm and she said yes so what follows is my conversation with linda um, the last thing that i want to say is that aside from her horticultural myths page which you can just find by googling linda chalker scott horticultural myths uh, is linda is part of a facebook group called the garden professors blog that is pretty cool as well and that's another place where uh, she and some of her colleagues t uh, try to pass on really useful information and also address certain myths that, that uh, exist in the gardening world. 
Now, I, I need to apologize in advance. Uh, there are about three to five minutes at the end of our conversation where I just started experiencing some bad feedback and didn't really realize it until I started editing our conversation. So I did my best to uh, limit the amount of feedback that you have to listen to, but there is a little bit at the end. So once again, everyone, I'm sorry. Okay, so that conversation is coming up. I just have to uh, attend to a little bit of housekeeping before we get to that. So last week I announced that I had begun taking donations to support the podcast and I just want to take some time to acknowledge a few people who made donations last week. Daniel B, Bill P, Sasha F, and Chris B. Thanks a lot for your donation and for your generosity. Uh, I really appreciate it. And to the rest of you, uh, if you're enjoying the show, please consider making a donation. You can visit the ruminant.ca slash gift registry if you want to consider doing so. Thanks a lot. And here's my conversation with Linda. Linda Jocker-Scott, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me here, Jordan. Linda, you're concerned about uh, many of the myths circulating in the gardening or, or horticultural world. On your horticultural myths website, you attempt to debunk those myths. And today I thought we could give my listeners an example of what you do by talking about compost tea. You bet. Okay, well, I want you to know, Linda, that I'm a commercial market gardener uh, up in British Columbia. And I'm actually in the process of developing, I've been interested in developing a compost tea amendment plan for my farm this year for the first time after reading a ton about it online. And and I've been interested about it for a few years. Uh, So... (laughs) I promise not to have hurt feelings if, um, if, 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 in terms of what you have to say today. But uh, I, I, so I thought I'd better start by uh, asking you to talk about why you think my resources might be better spent than on a compost uh, tea amendment plan. So maybe we could start this way, uh, Linda. What what is compost tea, and what are its purported benefits? Okay, so first of all, what I want to do is distinguish between the two different kinds of compost tea. So the material that's studied the earliest in terms of the most research done on it is what research is called non-aerated compost tea, which I will abbreviate as NCT, so I don't have to get that whole word out there. And this is stuff that is just made passively. You take a compost pile, you run water through it, and what leaches out is compost leachate or non-aerated compost tea. And people started studying this, I think, back about the 1980s in terms of seeing what the benefits or what the activities might be of of these teas. And one of the first things that was noticed that certain types of compost tea, especially those that were made out of uh, spent mushroom compost, so, you know, the stuff that's left over after growing mushrooms, and, and water, sometimes would have antagonistic effects against pathogens. So there was some interest uh, although not a lot of um, really good studies on, on whether or not this would be a way of fighting foliar disease. So in other words, being able to take this and spray it onto leaves or fruit and see if you could keep the pathogens off. And so it's one of these things that sometimes it would work and sometimes it didn't. Um, it's more likely to work under you know controlled conditions in a nursery or maybe in a lab, but not so much outdoors. So that kind of research went on for, I'd say, about 20 years And then aerated compost tea came along. And so aerated compost tea is, again, using compost as the feedstock, um, running water through it, but this time under aerated conditions. And so there has to be an aerator in the system. Um, So the system's agitated. There's constantly oxygen being put into it. So those are the two big differences. Um, 
well, the big difference, I guess, one's aerated, one's not. And what's important to understand is is that the number of, of or the types of microbes that you're going to have in those systems will be completely different because the ones in the aerated system will be ones that grow well in the presence of oxygen, and the ones out of the non-aerated compost teas would be ones mo- less likely to grow well in oxygen conditions. So interestingly enough, you can you know take aerated compost tea and stop aerating it, and then the populations all shift, and you get a non-aerated tea, and back and forth like that. So it's something that I think is important to keep in mind is that these these teas are dynamic populations of many types of microbes. And this is one of the reasons it's so hard to research it is because you can't easily replicate these conditions. Right. Okay. So, <laughs> so I just want to, I want to, I want to sum up. So, so essentially uh, for, in, in terms of um, the, the purported benefits, you, you're looking at potential um, disease or, and pathogen suppression, which I think I, I'd like to expand on in a moment, uh, as well as potential nutrient application in terms of gathering some of the, I guess, soluble nutrients uh, in the compost, uh, suspending them in the tea and then spraying them on to the plants. So really quickly, I have that roughly correct, right? Yeah, but more spring onto the soil, um, and that's 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 what I've seen uh, after the whole thing came out with the pesticide application, and we'll talk about the wisdom of that, and you know as we go along. Then the other would be to take this as a way of getting the nutrients from compost directly onto the soil, along with the microbes, and you know you see claims that you know this will bring you know lifeless soil back to life. So yeah, one is one is disease control, and the other one is uh, kind of soil nutrition. Okay, and then so like the most basic form is the NCT, the non-aerated compost, because you're 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 really just taking the compost and and making a tea, you know, throwing it in a bucket or whatever, throw some water in there, and and then use the use the tea to spray. Uh, versus the aerated, yeah. which is more of a process. But um, why did aerated take on steam? That that part, do you do you can you clarify that? Like why why was you've you've described that it's going to result in different kinds of microbes, but. Um, but, you know, it, in, in my observation, it really has taken on prominence in terms of um, its popularity. So, so what, it, what was the specific purported benefit of those different microbes? There aren't any. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing that's kind of interesting is that um, in the studies where they've actually compared the efficacy, and this is in, obviously in disease control, um, between non-aerated and aerated compost teas, um, there wasn't any consistent uh, difference, and where there were differences, it was usually the non-aerated one that worked better. So this is the interesting thing, is when you look at the actual science behind these two, is that in terms of possible disease management, that the microbes that might be most likely to work would be those that you'd get in a non-aerated compost tea. Why is that? Because because what's funny about that is most of the quote-unquote literature, um, you point out that a lot of the literature that I'm referring to comes from sites that have stand to, to sell you something, but but much of that kind of literature um, is really hammering the benefits of the aerated. So why, why is that the form of the tea that's really being uh, kind of advocated for? Well, I will give you my cynical response, which is because you can make money on it. And you can't make money off of non-aerated compost tea because it requires nothing special. As you say, it's a bucket and compost and water. Mm-hmm. And anybody can do that. And people have been doing that for centuries in terms of, you know, making a weak fertilizer. The aerated, there 
there are no published scientific benefits. You know, and when I say published, I'm talking about scientific literature published, uh, showing any benefit to ACTs, the aerated compost teas, over non-aerated. It's you know, usually when there's comparisons made, it's always made to water mm-hmm. or to nothing, which is <laughs> not even really a valid comparison because, you know, tea is mostly water. And if, you, if you're adding water to one set of plants, you've got to add them to the other. Um, so when you when you look at this in a completely objective, you know, experimental way, you, you just can't you just can't see benefits. And frankly, I'm not even sure what you could logically say they might be. I mean, they're, they're different groups of organisms. And without being able to identify specific organisms that would have a particular effect, and then again, knowing if those organisms are even in your tea, because of course, that's going to be different depending on the compost you use. I mean, it really is just kind of um, a shot in the dark every single time. You've kind of alluded to two things I want to I want to touch on. One is that you seem, and I'm I'm also re- just referring to the articles you've written on compost tea that are on your myth we- your horticultural myth website. Um, I think what you wrote there was that there is a little bit of science supporting the use of non aerated compost tea and its benefits. Um, very very little, if 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 any, science supporting the use of the the aerated compost tea. Um, so can you talk briefly? Yeah, let me- yeah, sorry. I was going to ask you if you could talk briefly about those benefits that have been documented of the non-aerated stuff. Well, as I said, there just there aren't that many, you know, uh, consistent, you know, reliable benefits. As I said, once you know, occasionally it'll work and then it won't. And I think this is because every time you make the tea, it's different because you're working with dynamic populations of multiple organisms. And it's really difficult to get the very same thing every time. In fact, I think it's probably impossible to get the very same thing every time. So from what I've been able to tease out from the, from the literature, and it's not quite clear yet, but speculation is with the non-aerated compost teas is that it might be a species of bacillus that's actually having antagonistic effects, but whichever one it is hasn't been identified but you can kind of see where this is going. So, you know, you, you're familiar with BT as a, as a natural insecticide. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, from the same thing, identifying a particular um, species, now, in this case, uh, Thuringiensis, and, and seeing that it had effects on insect larvae uh, guts. So they were able to find a particular bacterium that would do that. So given enough time and study, you could probably find the antagonistic species that if you sprayed them on a leaf, that they would have an effect on pathogens, but we're not there yet. Right now, it seems just by looking at the the bulk of literature out there that if you're going to find a, a microbe like that, it will probably be from the non-aerated type because there it doesn't seem to be any really good information on um, microbes in the aerated type compost tea. Okay, so this 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 next part might be kind of fun for you then, Linda. Like I'm going to encourage you to I'm going to encourage you to nurture that that cynical side a little bit, and I'm going to come at you from the point of view of the gung ho layperson grower, right? Based on what I've been reading online from admittedly non scientific sources, right? So so what I've mm-hmm. understood is that I want to stay away from the non aerated compost because if we if we take compost on its own, not the tea, but the compost. 
typically, I think, I think we, we can say, well, you're going to tell me if, if I'm wrong, but we can say that it's been scientifically shown that we, we want to create aerobic conditions when we make compost because that results in a lot more of the right kind of microbes that we want to apply to the soil and, and an overall um, healthier compost that, that actually, I can think of one thing I know I've read, that, that in aerobic conditions you're gonna, um, is going to result in less um, ammonia production, for example, that's going to that's gonna leach off a lot of your nitrogen. That sort of thing. So so I've been led to understand that for that reason, if we make the non-aerated compost tea, we're going to encourage the same kind of bad microorganisms um, that we're trying to avoid when we make compost itself. So do you want to pick that apart if you like? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we know that, that anaerobic compost is not good um, on your soils because it, it isn't well oxygenated. You can have pathogens growing in there. And if you have compost that's um, anaerobic, that also means that water and gas don't pass through it easily, which means that you're going to have effects on your soil. So we, we know that that's not a good thing to have. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting um, dichotomy that the research that's been done on non-anaerobic compost tea has actually had um, the most interesting results in terms of finding um, antagonistic Bacteria, and who knows? They may be bacteria that, if they were in the compost, might be pathogens. I don't know, but when they're sprayed on leaves, they have a different effect. It's just because because we don't know what we're looking for, and everything right now is just correlation. You know, it's just impossible to say. But it's it's it is a very interesting, um, as I said, dichotomy between what we know about having good versus bad compost, and where we're finding the most likely beneficial organisms well okay but so that's interesting though so so look you in the end you want to see science before you you know place any trust in any any of these practices uh so that's 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 a given but if we can enter the realm of conjecture do you think it is a fair link to make for the people that are promoting the aerated compost whether they want to sell me a compost brewer or not is it not a fair um assumption or link to make between between the organisms in a healthy aerated aerobic compost and a, and the organisms that you're going to reproduce by making the aerated compost tea? Not really, because if you're looking for a specific activity, uh, and a little for argument's sake, just say we're looking at disease control. I mean, you can't just do it without knowing what you're looking at, because you've got this mixture of, of organisms in there that are competing with each other, maybe benefiting each other, maybe um, destroying each other. You don't know. And all, all you do is you have a correlation. You have a correlation of having this liquid and then having an effect. And not knowing what it is exactly that, that's the causative agent, you, you can't say. And that's why you've just got to have these really, what a lot of people think are internally long, boring experiments that, look at individual organisms and exhaustively test, but that's the only way you can really come up with saying that this particular organism will have this effect. And to, to just say that this liquid, that we don't even know what's in it, is going to have the effect, and that liquid's going to be different every time, but still going to have an effect, Just it just doesn't really it doesn't fly. Right. And, and so, I mean, one thing that is, do you know, Linda, do you know who Elaine Ingham is? Oh, sure. Okay, so she's a major promoter of compost tea application. Um, mm-hmm. And so 
one way she attempts to i guess uh she's 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 advocating to to get at the problem that you've identified that it's very very hard even if we could isolate the organisms that we're after it would be very hard to reproduce them with regularity and consistency she's saying oh well the solution to that is um buy a microscope and learn how to analyze the the source compost that you're going to use um, learn how to build that really, really good source compost that's chock full of the organisms that she says she has been able to identify um, by that microscope. And I mean, getting getting at your cynicism again, also take my course that's hundreds of dollars to teach you how to analyze your uh, your samples of compost. And if you do that, you can you can regularly and consistently create this compost that is going to give you a reliable aerated compost tea product all the time. And she's right. You can you can get a microscope and you can learn to identify species, at least, well, maybe not species, but genera of bacteria. And you can learn, you know, what types of materials certain genera will go best in. But that proves nothing. That proves that you can identify microbes and that you might be able to get good, consistent growth of some of them in compost. And then past that, there's nothing because there's no evidence that it's going to do anything at all. So can we talk really briefly then about where the, the anecdotal evidence takes on steam? I mean, because you've dealt with so many myths. You must get people constantly, people like me constantly coming at you well, and saying, well, in my garden, when I started using that compost tea, it changed everything. Um, right. What is, you know, so how do you, how do, what is your response to that? Man, it must be a barrage for you with all these different topics. <laughs> yes, it is. And has been for almost 20 years now on this particular topic. Um, <laughs> well, what I try to get people to understand is that, I mean, anecdotal information is important. And the more anecdotal information you have, you know, one person's story, and the more that you see a pattern with increasing numbers of people's stories, the more likely that somebody's going to research it. And that's what's happened with, with a lot of um, products and practices, not just in, in gardening, but, but medical practices. I mean, this is what happens. You know, people get curious because they hear anecdotal stories about things that work, and they want to check it out to see if it does work. So when you put together an experiment, you know, you've got to have controlled conditions. So, for instance, when you start these types of experiments, you don't start with a landscape. You start at the lab level. And if you can get a difference at the lab level, then you try it at the greenhouse level. And if you can get a difference at the greenhouse level, then you take it outside. You know, so you're increasing your variability, but you know what you're looking for. And the, the problem is that with some of even even with um, well, either aerated or non-aerated, is there's so much variability that they they generally can't even get a response at the lab level. So in other words, everything being controlled with having leaf discs that are the same size and everything's in the same temperature and the only difference is that some are treated with water and some are treated with compost tea and sometimes you'll get a difference and sometimes you don't and sometimes it's worse than water. So this is this is the problem is that when you have so many variables in the treatment, in this case compost tea, I mean you've got who knows how many different species and how many how many of each of those species and whatever else is in that tea. I mean it's you know, it's an entire ecosystem, and you're applying that and then expecting that every time you do that, it's going to have the same effect. I mean, you know, biology isn't a recipe. Um, you know, you can, you can have a recipe and you can make cakes and cookies and have them be pretty much the same every time, 
but the only living thing in there really is the, is the yeast if you happen to be using it. But we're talking about really an entire microbial ecosystem. And it can't be the same every time. It's, it's, it's functionally impossible to guarantee that. So you can't even get past stage one with many of these trials just because you can't get the compost to be identical every time. But even if you could, let's say you could, let's say you were lucky and you were able to prove it at um, you know, the lab level, and then you take it out to a, a different level, and then not only do you have to have, you know, you have to have replicates, so you've got you know, several controls and several of uh, the treatments, and then you have to repeat that experiment, and then other people have to be able to repeat it. And this is why you will find nothing in the literature that is consistently repeated by other people. They'll have certain labs that claim they can get certain things done, but nobody can repeat their efforts. So until you can get to that point where it's consistent and credible, you just, as a scientist, you can't recommend it. And that, and 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 therefore, you think that? Uh, well, I mean, I'm putting words in your mouth for fun, mostly. But no, th- th- therefore, you think I'm I my my re- time and and money might be better spent than than creating a a, 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 a compost tea amendment plan for my for my market garden. Well, the thing is, is is and there's there's been a, a bunch of really good studies by um, a colleague of mine who's at University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, and he's looked at. Um, aerated compost teas, and he's looked at the compost as well that he has made those teas from, and he's done just really in-depth analysis of the chemistry as well as the biology. And the difference between a compost tea and compost is orders of magnitude, more nutrients, more microbes. I mean, the life is there in the compost. So, you know, the logical question for me is why would you strip things away from the organic matter, which is the food stock for all these things, and then expect this liquid, which is a, at best a weak fertilizer and a bunch of microbes that don't have their food source. You know, it, it just it doesn't make any sense. I mean, compost is great stuff, and, you know, there's good science behind compost and all the things that it does. But, you know, to strip away the food source from the microbes and then spray the microbes on the soil, it's just it's, it's not going to do anything for you. They don't have anything to eat. But isn't, I mean... Okay, so so uh, I should say at this point, it's a handy time to say uh, uh, most of your articles on these different myths end with a bo- the, your bottom line, kind of your your bullet points in in a bottom line conclusion. And one of your bottom line bullet points in this article is that is that you would advocate using compost mulch, like put compost in your garden. That's a great idea. Um, but isn't mm-hmm. I mean isn't the answer to your to your kind of rhetorical question there just that I mean. The whole idea of using compost tea is that you can take a small amount of uh, hopefully really good compost and make a massive amount through reproduction in an aerated compost brewer of, of um, you can reproduce a lot of those, you know, purportedly beneficial organisms and then spray them on your soil for someone who's limited in the compost itself or limited in the immense amount of time it takes to spread compost. But what are those microbes going to eat? What are That's they going to question. eat? I mean, sure. Sure, you can... Yeah, once you spray them on the soil, uh, I mean, right? They don't have. They you mean they don't have the carbon, the, the the carbon material and other materials to to to, to snack on? Right. I'm mean, sure. Yeah, you you can absolutely build up concentrations and, and make it more potent. You know, and and a lot of this stuff is made is is concentrated compost tea, and of course it's it's diluted before it's used. But all you've got is a bunch of hungry organisms, and once they're out the soil, there's nothing. There's no molasses or whatever the additives have been, and there's certainly no compost. Mm-hmm. So what do they eat? 
Uh, I'm going to do a one-off here, Linda, and I'm going to ask you just because it's so, it's just a, it's, it's, it's a purported benefit that's so interesting to me. So in terms of using compost tea as a foliar spray, I've heard Elaine Ingham herself say, okay, if like you have a good compost tea and you spray it on your plants, it's going to, it's going to cover coat the plants in um these beneficial pathogens which in a couple different ways will will prevent um disease and and other pathogens one of those ways being that the good pathogens are just taking up space on the on the surface of the plant and prevent um prevent giving the the bad pathogens any space to 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 take hold um this this is a one-off but i was wondering if you could comment specifically on that um that purported benefit well, sure. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, and I, and I know that you meant to say microbes, not pathogens. So yes, if you if you if you spray a surface with beneficial microbes, um, there is no space for pathogens to hit. And and we're learning a lot about you know what we kind of generically call biofilms, um, especially on roots. It's the very same thing that you know if the roots are colonized by beneficials, there's no room for the pathogens, and some of the beneficials even can destroy pathogens. It's you know the whole thing, especially with root biofilms, is is fascinating science. So, I mean, sure, there's, there's, a, there's a theoretical logic to it that makes sense. But in order to, to demonstrate that it actually works, you've got to have research that, that shows that, and you have to have research that shows that consistently. And I will say that Elaine Ingham's never published anything in the peer-reviewed literature on this topic that shows that it makes a difference. It's not to say she hasn't published. I mean, before she got into compost tea, you know, she was a you know, a well-regarded soil scientist with, with lots of research publications. But in terms of, you know, demonstrating her contentions about compost tea, there, she hasn't published any science that supports it, and other people haven't either. Why? I know you can't know the answer to this, but why, what would you guess is the reason why Elaine hasn't taken the, the peer-reviewed science route? If she so believes in this... Um, and given her background as, as a legitimate uh, soil scientist, why do you think she hasn't done that? I honestly don't know. And it would be, you know, interesting to, to actually be able to ask her that. Um, and it may be because she's tried and she has runs into the same problem that everybody else does, which is sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And you certainly aren't going to convince people if you have, you know, inconclusive evidence. Um, but, you know, if you can't get the evidence, you can't get it. And if, if you don't have it, you know, you're, you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot to present, um, you know, from a, from a commercial standpoint, to present evidence that, that goes against your commercial, your commercial interests. Right. Um, okay, so, so, Linda, I want to kind of broaden out the conversation now. Um, we're, we're still going to talk a little bit about compost teas, but more um, with the goal of talking in general about kind of epistemologies of of gardening, you know, like different ways of, we've kind of already been touching on it already, but just, you know, different ways of knowing and what we think we know about gardening and that sort of stuff. And Earlier, mm-hmm. earlier you, you talked about how hard it is for, to use science to test the efficacy of compost teas because, um, because in general with science, you need to take a fairly reductionist approach. My words, not yours. Um, that, that you need, mm-hmm. you need repeat, re, you need to be able to isolate, for example, like individual, uh, uh, microbes to be able to test them. Um, and there's just so much immense variability in, in compost tea that that's very hard to do. But I want to ask you if, if that kind of, re- 
the the necessity with most science of of having to take a reductionist approach is doesn't that become a bit of a limitation um of science when we're trying to get to a place of of when we're trying to apply these ideas or when we're i mean as because what i can agree with you right away is that ideally we would be able to test this and then therefore have a higher measure of confidence that that this stuff is effective but the reality is you've you've already described why we can't um so i don't know it just it almost feels like that 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 that's that's just a limitation of science and that therefore in this case we should have be putting more weight on the anecdotal well i mean people can do what they want you know and it becomes a it becomes a choice of whether you want to follow something that that's science based or whether you want to put your face into something and that's fine i'm certainly not going to tell people what they should and shouldn't believe um, however and, and you're right you can't you're not going to be able to do it with compost tea it's just not going to happen because it's so variable um, in terms of the tea itself, and you can't unless you can isolate. You know, unless you're lucky enough to isolate the right microbes, you're just not going to figure it out. But a lot of people are concerned about um, sustainability, uh, low carbon footprint, um, and I will tell you that spending a whole bunch of resources and electricity on making something with no demonstrable benefit, I think, is a waste of, of uh, energy resources and isn't sustainable. So, and this is interesting because it's it's so uh, contradictory to what a lot of people are doing, especially organic growers. And their whole point is, you know, to be a little more gentle with the land. Mm-hmm. And yet, they're spending money buying, you know, these various uh, additives. You know, some of them they have to be trucked in from other places. They have to buy a brewer. They have to oxygenate, so they're using electricity. They have to send their sample away to have it analyzed. I mean, it's expensive. And there's no, there's no real obvious benefit from it. This is, I think, what astounds me the most is that with all this expense, that there's no measurable benefit. I mean, people think they see a benefit, but oftentimes it's just because they're adding water mm-hmm. or, or it just happens to be one year's different than another because of you know, dif- differences in temperature and rainfall and everything else. So without something that's a really obvious benefit, I just find it amazing that people will spend the time and money on doing something where it might work and it might not. And I suppose, but, that, as I said, I suppo- people want to believe it. That's fine. <laughs> but I suppose, and I suppose, I'm just getting that this, there's a subtext to what you're saying, which is that that you haven't said specifically, which is which is that um, why go with something that is so unproven when there are so many things that we have figured out about improving crop, like crop health and crop and yields and that sort of stuff. Why not just stick to the stuff that that we do know? Oh, exactly. I mean, there are some fantastic organic types of uh, practices that, uh, that that everybody should do. And, and, and if you look at my website, you know that I'm a firm believer in, in, in mulching um, when you use the right type of mulch because mulches are one of the most important things you can do for a soil. And I've spent a lot of time researching those, both experimentally and the literature, and you know, mulches are great. And there are a lot of things you can do to make the soil healthier, to make your plants healthier, um, that are easily demonstrable and sometimes aren't very expensive and may not take a lot of effort. Okay, so uh, Linda, you've already you've already sort of touched on the next question, but I want to ask it very plainly and, and have you answer it directly in this case, okay? Um, okay. So I've already I already touched on and you 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 did acknowledge that that um, there, science can have limitations because it's of its need um, 
to 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 isolate variables, and that makes certain uh, certain tests hard to do. On like compost tea being a great example. Um, what is the role that anecdotal evidence can or should play uh, in 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 gardening decisions? Um, well, we're going to have to suppose now that people want to do something that they can see evidence for and not just believe in, correct? So are we going to start with that premise or not? Let's start with that premise. Okay. So you want to have something that has been um, tested and you feel fairly confident you're going to have a certain result if you happen to use that product or practice. So what I see, and I think I mentioned this before, what anecdotal evidence can do is is point people in a direction to research things. So, for instance, I just started doing um, research in our greenhouse on the effect of Epsom salts as a fertilizer because there are so many things on the Internet that say that, you know, you don't need to use anything else. You can use Epsom salts and you get all this greening and all this stuff. And you know something? No one has ever tested this in a garden, houseplant type of situation. There's, you know, there's agricultural production, especially of tree fruits where it's been used, but nothing for gardens and landscapes. So because there is so much noise out there on it, I finally decided, you know, I'll just go ahead and start doing some experiments that I can publish. So that's, I think, where anecdotal information can be useful in in the best sense because it will push somebody to research it and try to find, you know, try to tease out, does it work or does it not? So, okay, Linda, uh, you are very clearly... As I talk to you, uh, you are uh, a very nice person. I might even go as far as to say, based on my, let's see, on my uh, monitor here, 42 and a half minutes with you, a lovely person. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> but. But, no, I, I, I hope you'll take this question uh, uh, with, yeah, in, in the way it's intended. I think you'll get that real quick. Occasionally, so you've got a lot of these myth-busting articles, um, and you're not the only one putting out uh, literature like this. Um, occasionally, I, I, my subjective interpretation of your articles, uh, I've, I've interpreted um, at least occasionally a, an at least mildly disdainful or mocking tone to them uh, in some cases. So with all that hedging I just did, would you agree that occasionally there's a bit of mock mockery or dis disdain in embedded in some of the stuff you're writing about? Well, I, you know, I can't say no because I'm human, you know, we're all human. And when you start talking about things that are completely nonsensical, like plants can hear music and they don't like acid rock. I mean, there are some things that are just so bizarre that it's difficult not, <laughs> it's difficult to be completely objective and when I when I wrote these, it was for our um, our uh, landscape uh, magazine down here for Washington State Nursery and Landscape Association. So it was just kind of you know me dashing off these columns that just were looking at some of these practices and products. And then when you know when the internet got to be easier to use, I just kind of threw them up on the website just so they could be there for other people to pull down. So yeah, and it's just it's it's part of my tone, you know. I mean when I mean I I publish regular science articles too and you won't find that in those because they are completely you know scientific objective papers they go through peer review so they don't have a tone to them at all and in fact if a tone seeps in it's always taken out by the reviewers because they'll say you know you've got a tone but when i'm doing something like these you know the kind of white paper thing 
um, where it's more of a conversational tone, mm-hmm. then my personality comes through. And and I mean that 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 in and of itself is fine, but I also think it's interesting to talk about. So I'm I'm grateful that you've acknowledged it. I as you were acknowledging it, I I thought of. Your article on foliar sprays contained an intro that was actually quite funny. You 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 essentially gathered together all these different marketing claims by these different foliar spray products, oh, uh-huh. um, mm-hmm. and and by putting them all together, you see how contradictory they are. And that that was funny, but it was also it was also mocking. And the reason I'm asking is because it's very easy as a layperson, especially a layperson maybe coming to these articles with some ingrained beliefs that you're challenging um, to. Uh, to feel, I guess it 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 can make one feel bad about themselves. It can make one almost resentful, and I almost worry potentially want to close their mind to the ideas. So I I just thought I'd ask you how I mean if if you think it's that important to strive as a person of science to avoid arrogance, which can be a tr- a problem for a lot of scientists, or to avoid mockery, to avoid disdain. Uh, if, well, it, I think that. Oh, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think a lot of it is because when you've got printed words, it's flat. And, you know, you can't, you can't see me saying them, like, you can't hear me saying them like you can now. And I think that, that having listened to me, you know, you, you, yeah, as you said, I'm a perfectly nice person. <laughs> and people have actually said this to me before, you know, when I've heard you speak in person. You know, you're so patient and you're, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're funny and all the rest of the stuff. Because I, I do a lot of, of seminars um, all over the world, actually. But when you've got something on a piece of paper and you've got a certain number of words, because, as I said, these were originally written for a, a, a landscape magazine, um, you, you tend to be more terse. You tend to, you know, be more blunt um, and maybe not couch things as carefully as you might. And that's, you know, and, and, and that's, you know, I, I certainly don't try to do that. I certainly don't try to make people feel bad about themselves. I do try to challenge how they're thinking and their perceptions of stuff. I love challenging um, people. But this is, this is the, um, the downside of having written material on the web is that people can't hear you say it or see you when you're talking and, and you know, kind of get the, uh, the better side of your personality. They, they read maybe more into it than is actually meant. Hey folks, this is Jordan cutting in in post-production. So around this part in the recording, I picked up some nasty feedback. You've already heard it happening in the background there. So I cut out the last question that I asked Linda. Essentially, I just wanted to know her thoughts on why these, some of these ideas that aren't scientifically backed up are so appealing to people. And she starts talking about the emotional appeal of these ideas. And I'll let her pick it up from there. And I'm just doing this to reduce the amount of feedback you have to hear. No, the emotional appeal is huge, and this is what I always tell people to look at. I mean, I, I, do, I do seminars on scientific literacy and analyzing claims, and part of what I tell people to look at is, is the emotional appeal. So when you have something um, that, like compost tea, that's called compost tea, not compost leachate, there's a reason for that. It's called tea for a very specific reason, and that's to appeal to you emotionally because tea is a, is a warm, soothing, comforting thing. Leachate sounds like leeches. <laughs> Nobody wants to deal with that. So you don't hear it called as, you know, compost leachate brewing, right, do right. you? Same, same with, with lasagna mulching. Or you know, s- it's another one of these practices that's completely without any science whatsoever, but it's lasagna, and right. it sounds great. And, I mean, we call it compost and not decompose plant death. 
that's <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Linda, that, that's great. I, I, we've kind of covered this topic and I, I think it's a good place to leave off, but, um, but I do want to ask you two more questions. One is to promote the, the other aspects of your extension and your, 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 your Washington state university, uh, page. Um, and also something I don't ask enough of, of the extension folks that I talk to, which is if you had your druthers, how would people better use extension? Oh, wow. Um, you know, the people, I, I, I guess it's people need to discover that it exists. Because people like you and people I work with that are aware of it, they can't get enough. You know, they love it. They love the fact that it's out there, that it's, it's doing work that's accessible to them. But there's so many people that don't know it's there. And then I think even more so, there's people that don't understand that extension is, is, is really in, in the process of going extinct in terms of, what they're used to. Um, there used to be many, many people like me all over the all over the country that were doing, um, you know, information for gardeners and 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 for people in ag as well. And those positions, you know, once people retire, they're not being refilled. And so extensions just it's dying a slow and, and painful death. So I think part of it is is, is um, being aware that it exists in them. And here's my political push, you know. <laughs> If you're in a state where, where you don't have enough extension, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to talk to the university um, or your state legislature. I mean, you need to support this type of stuff. It's, it's one of the best uses of public money, in my unbiased, my biased opinion, I think you could have. All right. Well, Linda Chalker-Scott, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Um, you are not disdainful. I should, it should be known. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm grateful, especially as a Canadian, <laughs> for for folks like you that are out there uh, to to help us be better at gardening and farming. So thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me, Jordan. <laughs> Today Island, I All right, that's the show, everyone. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I'll most likely feature a conversation uh, with one of the minds and talents behind a brand new seed company called Row 7 Seeds, which represents a collaboration between uh, chefs and plant breeders to try and breed plant varieties for more flavor. Very cool stuff and a neat conversation, and I will talk to you then theruminant.ca slash gift registry if you'd like to support the show. Thanks so much. Make our final escape. All we'll need is each other a hundred dollars and maybe a roll of duct tape. And we'll run right outside of the city's reaches. We'll live off chestnut spring water and peaches. We'll owe nothing to this world of thieves and live life like it was meant to be. trying to bleed us dry we could be happy with life in the country with salt on our skin and the dirt on our hands 
I've been doing a lot of thinking, some real soul searching, and here's my final resolve. I don't need a big old house or some fancy car to keep my love going strong. So we'll run right out into the wilds and graces. We'll keep close quarters with gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees. Live life like it was meant to be